0: I'm Sonia Morton Firth and you're tuned in to the Sonia Morton Firth Show. Today, my guest is Eric Kleinsmith. Eric served in the US military intelligence and is an expert on terrorism. He's also an author and now vice president for the American Military University for strategic relations in intelligence and cyber security. We talk about him being a whistleblower in the US investigation of 9-11 and the infamous legend, D.B. Cooper. We also talk about COVID, the manipulation of data, censorship, and what the biggest threat is to the US today. Thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on my show. Uh, Now, I'm loving this because I get to interview people all around the world, uh, so that's the positive about doing the Zoom. Eric, tell everyone where where, where you're from and um, where you're sitting at the moment.
1: Okay, well, I'm I'm actually sitting in my house because uh, and, I, and I work for in an online university called American Military University, or there's other names for it, American Public University System. But we this, our school has always been an online or distance learning higher education. So and and that's. I, mean, I even got my master's through the school in strategic intelligence while I was in active duty working in a classified environment. Uh, that, that was the beauty of, of the school. And so, when I eventually finally came to work for them, uh, we did have an office in Manassas, Virginia, which is right out and, and right next to the Manassas battlefield from the American Civil War. So, you can walk out of the building and and you're on a, an area of the battlefield, which is as a history nerd, it's it's fantastic for me. Uh, but just for COVID, we decided to to shut the shut that building down, and so everybody's works from home. Uh, so I'm in my undisclosed location, aka my basement. Of my house. <laughs> I, I, I told my wife, "Is like, hey, I'm going to be working from home." And she goes, "Well, how long?" I said, "For, for the rest of my career." And she said, "Well, then you're moving out of the dining room."
0: <laughs> yeah, here's the basement. There you <laughs> exactly. go. Exactly. Eric, <laughs> look I'm so I'm I'm, I'm so thrilled that, that you're with me here today and I'm very excited about our chat um now before we get into sort of some of the ins and outs of your career uh, okay. you joined the military tell me a little bit more about that background what why did you decide to join the military
1: well part of it is is I I am the youngest of three boys my my dad was an educator my mom was an educator um but uh, my father was killed when I was 15 oh. um, and, and it was just as simple. He, he was jogging around uh, outside of our neighborhood and a, a girl that was putting makeup on hit him from behind uh, oh. was, was a, as a distracted driver. And so that was in the middle of my uh, in between my my sophomore and junior year of high school. So my high school was, uh, you know, as as privileged as I felt uh, being raised with a, you know, a uh, a fantastic father, fantastic mother, and my father never joined a group or club that did not have to do with the family. So he was never involved with the with the, you know the local Rotary or uh, you know at the you know any kind of lodge or anything like that. And and his and for criticism that received from that, it was his response was. You know, you're not contributing to the community, and, and he said, "Well, I'm raising three boys. That's my contribution to the community." Mm-hmm. And after he passed away, we all had, uh, you know, we we were all growing up in a in a very patriotic environment in terms of our family. So my oldest brother became an officer in the Marine Corps. My middle brother became an officer in the army and joined the 101st Airborne Division and then he had since left and uh, he just retired December 31st after 30 years as a Secret Service officer. Um, He's probably one of the most decorated officers in the history of that organization. Um, You know, so it's just patriotism has always been part of our life and so part of besides the patriotic field, but also to understand more about my father's life is another reason why I think we all joined up. And so I joined the military first as an armor officer, which was perfect because my dad was an armored cavalry officer. He was in, in the Cold War. He was on the German border uh, uh, in the 7th, in the, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, in the 7th Cavalry for a time. Um, and, and so that was, that was a big draw for me. So I, I did my first tour on M1 tanks and then I switched over to these scouts and reconnaissance vehicles. And so we were doing uh, the, the, the kind of the, in the UK would be a, a version of the Rat Patrol uh, from World War II, where we had 10 Humvees, no, no tops, no doors, no windshields, which would be f- fantastic in the desert, but we were in the mountains of Colorado and it was uh, much harder living uh, when you spend a third of your year out in, out, in the, out in the field for that. Um, and I, from that point, I switched over to intelligence, and that was the rest of my career.
0: And, and that's obviously where I, I want to chat to you about um, your, your career in the, the intelligence side of it. You became um, chief of intelligence for land information warfare. Um, and as I understand it, you pioneered um, analysis using data mining. Now, for some people, that might go over their heads a little bit. Yeah. Not a, yeah translate that into um, plain layman terms, English terms? Okay. What is, what did you, what were you actually doing?
1: This, this was a, a relatively brand new organization. It had only been in existence for, I think, two years before I even arrived. And the, the organization was, was with, for the Army was focused on all of the elements of information warfare. So and that includes deception, psychological operations, com, uh, computer network, uh, a defense or computer network attack, um, you know, those kind of aspects and then it, and it even got into uh, a term was called operational security. So when you're working as a business or something like that, how much in, how much of the secrets of your business are you throwing in the trash and somebody can just dump you know dive into a dumpster and find out everything your, your company is working on whether it's a secret sauce or the next plans for the next auto, you know, next vehicle that you're you're designing or something like that, and so that was another aspect of going into organizations, and you know, and just under just showing them here's where you're losing all of your information. We can uh, anybody who is a spy doesn't need to break into your organization. You're you're throwing it out, or your folks are talking about it uh, online or something like that, and uh, that's another aspect. And so all these parts of information warfare. Uh, I became the first military lead uh, uh, as an army major of the intelligence branch for that. And so it was our job to, to do analysis and, and what really what an intelligence does. And if you think about an intelligence and as an investigator, like a police investigator that does analysis a, a police investigator does analysis to try to figure out what happened. How did the crime occur? So they're doing it working in the past. Yeah. What intelligence folks have to do is they're working with the same information, but it's their job to say, this is what I think is going to happen in the future based upon you know, whatever threat organization you are worked on. And oh, by the way, they don't want us to know what they're working on. So they're taking their own measures to hide information and things like that. And that that's really the business of intelligence overall.
0: And on that, you worked on a couple of, well, many high-profile cases. Yes. Um, and as yes. you just mentioned, you were looking in, into the future rather than sort of investigating the past.
1: Right. Right.
0: Um, tell me about the ABLE Danger Program, because that's, okay. that's the one that I guess, had, sure. had you know where well, you did know what was going to happen?
1: Right. And,
0: and yeah. obviously the consequences that, of that were, were devastating. Right. So tell, tell me a little bit more about what Able Danger was all about. Okay.
1: Able Danger was the name to a, an operation that our the U.S. Special Operations Command uh, embarked on after the, I think it was af, after the Kobar Tommy, Towers, no, after the bombings of Kenya and Tanzania, the, the U.S. embassies there. And they came to us afterwards, and they were looking to way to find and hunt down Al Qaeda worldwide, but they were fairly unhappy with the results they were getting from the big three letter agencies around DC. And this,
0: be clear, this was before 9-11. We're talking
1: yes, this was 1999-2000. And they, they came to our organization just as a, on the tail end of their kind of fact uh, hunting trip of who could help them. And, and the, th- the problem with, with the, the large intelligence agencies is they're not designed, at the time, they weren't designed to help you know, a bunch of war fighters. They were, they were really designed to help national decision makers. That's what they were there for. And so when an organization comes to them and says, look, we need some help hunting these guys, uh, it was really, well, we can help you, but you got to take a number. And that's a very in a very simple way of saying it. And so they came to us and they when they saw that we were the first operation that had had brought in data mining tools. Uh in that the first six months of my job there was trying to figure these tools out because there was no class, there was no book, there was no guide on doing that. And so it was myself and my analysts trying to figure out how to make sense of all the data that we could then Harvest and, and visualize through different software tools or whatever. What
0: sort of what sort of data are we talking about here?
1: Um, it could it could be anything from at, at the front end of an operation, you're always going to use what what was is really called open source, which is just newspapers, uh, web articles, things, things like that. That's open to everyone, publicly available information. And that that can be about 85% of what you need is is out there in the public already. Problem is there's so much of it so we had, for example, we had a tool that we could just use a query, like a Google query or something like that, but instead of just seeing pages and pages of links that we'd go to, we had a tool that could harvest all of those links and then throw them into a chart so that you would see 4,000 articles at one time, but they were all laid out in a topographical map according to the subject matter. Um, And that, and and it it was just really, and that's where your tactical sense comes in. You start looking at the high points. You're looking at the little, the isolated nodes, and why is this? Why did somebody write about this and nobody else wrote about that? You know, why did this keyword come up so many times? And and what we also realized that we could easily pick up propaganda. So when somebody was uh, running an operation, a propaganda operation against our, our country. And in one case where you were using a foreign election, we could see the threat country that did not like us was constantly using the same phrase. Uh, let's say it's a gravitas or whatever. We could see it where it started. We could see how that talking point spread. We could see where, you know, how, when it reached its peak or when it died off. So there's all these new things that we could do with information. Wow. And, and it's really what we briefed the special operation guys. And then they were immediately sold that say, we want you guys as part of this operation.
0: And at what point do you sort of look at all this and think, wow, there's, there's something going on here. We need... <laughs> for, for, for the... <laughs> it's not looking good or this isn't, this is looking like something's going to gonna proceed.
1: Mm. For, for able danger, that was almost immediate because we had already done previously and that's, that's how they knew about us is we were already doing a, a another operation to understand how, uh chinese foreign intelligence was stealing technology from the department of defense and it was and which just shocking what we were revealing and what we were learning it's just you know it it is so easy to steal technology if you can steal it in the places that they're doing the research before it becomes classified technology and that was a big shock so we were seeing a, a total infiltration of our our university system uh, our graduate labs, our research labs, and then total infiltration of, multi- of multinational corporations that we, we would have partnerships, but that corporation would also have a partnership with a Chinese firm or something like that. And so we, we already gained notoriety for, for revealing all of these vulnerabilities in our own system. And that's what brought special operations guys to us. And so as soon as we started doing data mining harvesting, and it was just like, take the word, word Al Qaeda, go and just start, you start with that. And we started getting hits. We, we had to organize them geographically. And what where it really hit me when I saw my hometown of Plymouth, Michigan popped up as a node for a link to a false front business that was funneling money into the Al Qaeda organization. And that was, just, that was just the total eye opener right there. And that was like on the third day of us working this. And so we immediately found the footprints in Europe. We found footprints in the uh, South Pacific um, Another organization, a a partner organization called Jamiya Islamaya and Abu Sayyaf working in uh, the Philippines and and Indonesia. But really, what really got to us was when we started seeing, uh, you know, we found the New Jersey cell. We found Muhammad Atta and his, his, uh, uh, co-pilots uh, taking uh, uh, involved in 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 the uh, flight classes. We saw a, a heavy presence in Canada, and, and we learned very quickly that to the to a foreign terrorist organization like Al Qaeda, Canada was their aircraft carrier to attack us. You know, it's, and so immediately that. started losing still sleep over that.
0: Uh, uh, Eric, you found out all of this before nine eleven, right? what right. happened what i mean did did well, you well we, we, we were, know what happened because we were
1: yeah what
0: happened to the program
1: we were we were working in close partnership with uh with special operations command but the word got started filtering up through the chain of command and got into the pentagon that here was this rogue not rogue here was this small intelligence operation It was only 24 of us in fact the team that we that I put together for this was only four people including myself.
0: Were you uh, worried for your own life at the, this stage? Um, the sort of information that you were?
1: Yes yes but not as not as much as as we we got more paranoid with the with the Chinese foreign intel because just because of the the reach of their organization but what what we started getting was a feel of dread that something was coming and and we weren't you know we we couldn't nail down specifically what it was we just knew something was coming and so uh years later i had to go testify before the the u.s yeah. senate and, uh, and u.s house armed service committee and and i had to finally draw on the analogy that we we felt like afterwards that we were that the radio listening station that was positioned on the north coast of hawaii watching the japanese fighters stream toward pearl harbor and being unable to really get you know, get our voice out that this was coming. And so we, we sent information back to SOCOM, we were working with them, but the, the DOD lawyers and leadership started getting more and more upset with the fact that we were harvesting so much information, but we were also in, the, in these batches of two and a half terabytes that we were pulling in, we were also pulling in information about US persons, and it's specifically illegal for intelligence folks to collect on US persons as part of our own uh, US code or our own laws. And the problem that they were wrestling with was, well, did these guys do that on purpose or was it just incidental because they put in a phrase and that's what came back. And that took, they shut the whole operation down, but it took months for them to wrestle with, how do we do this properly? And and that the, the frustration was that we could only Besides collecting the information, if there was information on U.S. persons, which we undoubtedly had, um, we could also only keep that information for 90 days. So as the 90-day mark hit, I was informed by our own lawyers and come down and says, you know, look, you either delete this stuff or you go to jail. And so I was the one who deleted all the data and I had a warrant officer with me and she deleted our secondary set of data. And that was about the worst day I think I've ever had in the military was doing that because we knew something was coming and we were shutting everything down and we were deleting everything we had.
0: Wow, Eric, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've had many sleepless nights over it. Yes. Um, so you basically deleted, basically evidence that nine eleven 9-11 right. was going to take place. Right. But you were made to delete, you, you didn't. Right,
1: you. right. Um, and, and I got I got grilled on it on, on up on Capitol Hill before the Senate and actually and uh, one of the uh, uh, President Biden was he was a senator he was in there, um, and that was the questions I got it got back is you know why you know who made you delete this data I said nobody did this and I held up the regulation the regulation made me delete the data, but what was horrible about that that whole day was. As I got into the room, it was packed wall-to-wall folks uh, of myself going to testify. And I was asking one of the staffers, like who, who are all these folks that are here? He said, well, about a third of them are reporters. About a third of them are other staffers. And about a third of them are the families of the victims of oh, 9-11. Wow. And, and that just, at that point, that was about, that was again, another low point where it's just, you know, I have to walk in and tell her, tell the world why I failed wow. by, by obeying the law.
0: And that's what you swore to. But in the same light, you you, you, you became a whistleblower, right? You didn't yes. have, you didn't have yep. to stand up and say this. And I bet the easier thing would have been not the easier thing, but you, you were telling a nation what happened.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, right. That
0: must have entailed a huge amount of well risk, um, yep. and and you to actually stand up and say those things.
1: Right. It was it was frustrating because. Yes, I, I could have. I could have held the data, but I, but knowing I would have d- doing so would have knowingly violated our own regulations, um, and and quite frankly, put put our put our own unit in, in jeopardy. Somebody else would have come down and deleted it for me, and you know we would have suffered the consequences for not doing that or trying to hide it or whatever. Um, and I think it was, it was just one of those instances where you know. You, you do everything in, in your in your power for your entire career to to further your own country and and you know follow your own guides of what you think is right and wrong and you're doing something that you know in your heart is completely wrong but it's in conflict with what you know you're supposed to be doing
0: would you have done it differently i i guess it's that's a very I, it's track. hard
1: to do be, yeah not now it's after 911 like the entire world has changed so it's just it, the, the second even the second time i went up uh, I had to testify. It was six months later. We had to go back up, and I had after that was all after the testimony was all done. I had you know, reporters asking questions, and I had this guy I was talking to asking me all these questions. Follow me out in the hallway, asking me some very personal stuff. And I finally just had to stop this guy, and I said, "Look, I'm sorry. I, I don't know who you are." And he said, "Mike, was I am so sorry. My name is Kirk Lippold. I was the commander of the USS Cole." that was bombed and we had intelligence that could also have warned his ship that there was a, a planned attack on that as well because that was part of the data set that we had deleted because we also had some residual pieces on other operations and, and, and everyone had known that as well. And, and I just, again, I just, I, I, the first thing I had to do is again, apologize to him. I was like, I'm sorry I failed you. And because of that, 17 sailors lost their lives. If we could have warned you, we could have, we could have precept, uh, prevented that. I um, mean, now we're, now we're friends, but it's just, you know, another tough part.
0: So in, in, in the end of the day, you, you were basically taking orders. You were doing... Yes. So yeah. In, in who, did anyone pay for this? Were, were rules changed?
1: Were, no. Um, 9-11 Commission uh, skipped over. It never came down to even interview us. And part of the reason was because they didn't know we existed. Uh, we didn't know our operation was being run like that. It, it was one of our members who finally blew the whistle and, and we had to make a choice you know, when he first came out. Uh, we had to make a choice, do we back this guy or do, or do we tell you know, go back and tell the truth and the details? And uh, this guy was our liaison to uh, a DIA. In fact, you, you probably know him, his name is Tony Schaefer. He's, reg- he's a regular pundit on uh, several shows, uh, but that, we, you know, that was our decision. Do we back him up or do we not? Uh, and, and my immediate, immediately, it's just like that. this needs this story of what we tried to do. And the whole argument is, well, we, f- the U.S. failed because they failed to connect the dots. Um, my, my answer to that is absolutely not. We connected the dots. We, we failed because we, we failed ourselves because of our own bureaucracy and our own inability to, to, to get, get past some of our parochial interests of, of agencies protecting information from other agencies and things like that.
0: Now I, I think I might know the answer to this, but would this happen again? Like let's say this whole scenario yeah.
1: now? There's there is always an the, the, the biggest the biggest shock that, that I know folks are worried about now is is the it's it's the term called the cyber Pearl Harbor. And it's and it's not just a cyber attack, but it could there be an attack that's a it's a multi-layered attack because you could do you know, a, and there's so there's, there's lots of literature, you know, fictitious novels, folks writing about this, but how could you combine a a total breakdown of the U S society by a terrorist attack with an EMP strike with a cyber attack that just disrupts everything that we've uh, been involved with. And you know, that, that's your, that's your doomsday scenario, which would involve the, you know, millions of lives and, and things like that. That's really why cyber has become such an important piece for, uh, our U.S. national security or even, you know, U.K. national security.
0: I mean, just, just on, on that, because things in, in the U.S., I mean, we're going through difficult times all around the world. Right. Um, right. And, I, and I guess we can't not mention the COVID word. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> now, I'm not quite sure how things are there. We're, we're, we're looking positive, and it looks like we're coming out of lockdown but obviously it, it's, it's shaken up the world. What, what are your views on that? Cause I believe you've written some articles. Um, yeah. You thought right. of China, and it'd be interesting to hear those. You've probably been asked this a thousand times. Right,
1: right. Part, part of, with, with COVID, and it was, it was interesting because my daughter caught it and uh, she was down at uh, a school, James Madison University, which is about hundred miles from here. At her age, it was the the worst thing that happened was the effect on her social life with some of her friends blaming her for getting it and things like that. But from from a a 20 year old, she just, you know, she was able just to bear through it and just shook it off, you know, within a week or so. But for a country at large, I think the worst piece about what it did to our economy and our livelihoods and our culture and everything else is that the virus didn't do that. We did that. You know, we we destroyed our own economy. We we changed our own culture, uh, and part of it was based upon. And, and the, the some of the talks I gave initially on COVID were was really based upon the the, the false sets of modeling that occurred to try to to try to. And again, it's, it, it, if you're involved with information warfare, you know you, people who create models. Liars, figures, and figures lie. And so we I seen models that were coming out that were total exaggerations and fabrications and one of the things like for example is there's a photo that was floating around my social media and it was a it's a photo of an intersection but somebody had blown up a COVID virus to the size of a you know several you know water like a watermelon size virus and and then just put it all over the photo and up on the street lamps and and the caption was if you could see it would you still go out And, and I'm looking at this it's like this is such an exaggeration for and it's a it's it's a model I am almost certain that a COVID virus is not sitting on a stoplight waiting to jump down and tackle me while I'm trying to cross the street. No, I'm
0: sure it isn't. Definitely not. And I I could tell you some funny stories here of of, of the (laughs) laws that we've got in place that means you can't sit on a bench and have a drink, but you can stand up and have a drink because COVID is going to get you sitting down. Right. (laughs) <laughs> right.
1: Yeah, And my, my thing is, is, you can draw parallels with this with, with a lot of other things. It's like, is you're not following science, you're following political science. And you're not, you know, as soon as political bias gets into something, it destroys it, whether it's sports, whether it's, uh, you know, the, the entertainment industry, it's like, and, and for intel, intelligence folks, we have to work with with politics all the time. But as soon as we become political, we are worthless as a as a as an organization or as a career. Um, that's the biggest problem. And the same thing happened to COVID. As soon as it became political, it we ru- we ruined our response because of that.
0: We were you involved with any of the statistics, or did you look at did you look into any of the data that was going on? Yes
1: yeah and that's that's part of this I, I did I did a, a couple of webinars and, and like I said I wrote a couple of articles like by looking at the data just showing how you can take the same set of data and draw a completely fabricated set of uh analysis and warnings and things like that but and and the data doesn't really it doesn't you know it doesn't really back it up if you twist it in a certain way and that's the whole you know, that that's part of the whole fake news. It's like, well, my facts are different than your facts. It's like, well, you're taking those same facts, but you're, you're twisting them and, and, and drawing them into a model that makes no sense whatsoever.
0: What, what, why do you think that twisting it? What's that? Why do you think they're twisting it?
1: Be, because most, a lot of times we're, we're using, we use a lot of like information of the news. It's, we're not using it to draw our own conclusions. And, the, and I know it's a, the buzzword is we're not critically we're not critically reading our own news sources. We're not critically evaluating is this a a no kidding source. What we're really doing is we're going and see, we're seeking out information that confirms the bias that we've already have that we already have in place. And so if you've been most of my most of my friends or families or neighbors who are just so deathly afraid of COVID. Are, I can tell that they it's because they're they're listening to different news sources than I am, and I know the news sources that they're looking they're looking at and things like that. It's, um, it's, it's the
0: same here, you know. You, you turn yes. on our television and you watch what I call the mass media, the, the normal right. media, and right. if you listen to the statistics that they're putting out, which sound absolutely awful, and then actually if you analyze those statistics. And and look at what they actually what they're saying. Right.
1: Right. That's right. And that's the whole the whole story of fake news is is is, you know became kind of a buzzword like four years ago, but really when I started breaking it down, all fake news is propaganda that has slipped beyond you know in in World War II we had propaganda we had you know and propaganda is government or, or government originated. Uh, news and stories to help, to help influence the decision-making of your adversary. And that's, that's what, and and really also the decision-making of your own, of your own people to to say that everything's going great. Um, But now fake news is propaganda that is exercised by a political organization or a news organization, which now is again, blurring, blurring past the point of what's a political organization. And, you know, it's, News organizations are political organizations now, as they start embracing uh, opinion-based news. Or uh, instead of instead of providing, you know, a, a factual set of uh, stories and let the viewers decide, uh, opinion-based news feels that well, we're smarter than everyone else. We're we're going to tell you what to think, not or, you know, not uh, what the actual stories are and let you make your own decisions.
0: And then on top of that, you've got social media and what's going on there right think social media has exacerbated the problem or or opened up a different view it,
1: yes and no i mean there's there's more there's more information out there but there's always there's and that comes what comes with that is there's more noise hmm. and it depends on if you want to it's your attitude on how you how you approach social media if you're going there and i know that the, the term was called doom scrolling when you're just scrolling through looking for something that will get you upset, and that and you're it's that's part, that's your problem. You're already part of that that hatred culture that you you can't just disagree with somebody and just let that slide by. You have to do something about it. You know my and, you know our generation of folks. It's you know when you're when you're when you've identified something that you just don't want to be a part of or something that you don't like, you walk away. Now it seems to be more incumbent upon us. If you don't like something, I got to make that illegal so that nobody can do that. And that's part of what's ruining, you know, you know and social media gives you a platform for anybody without an editor to voice their opinion. And my wife hates it when I say this, but it just, it gives a platform for you to air your stupidity to the rest of the world without anybody saying, mm, are you sure you want to say that? You know, in in old times, you could have a discussion, and somebody's like, you Well, what? Wait, let me reword that. Well, social media is too late. You, you just put it out there. That's why I, I deleted my Twitter account a couple of months ago. It was just, I, it was great, great source of information in some cases, but it just it just seemed more and more of a platform for folks to broadcast their ignorance. And what and, do
0: you what do you make of all this censorship at the moment as well? I mean, well,
1: I'm, I am I am one hundred percent against it. Uh, absolutely and just you know it's like I, I wrote in one of my articles was that censorship does not defeat the other side's argument that you disagree with it just makes it move to a different market space and so if you're going to delete somebody's Twitter account or, 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 or um, put, their, face, do, put them in or Facebook, their Facebook
0: yeah Yeah.
1: yeah it's like it, that's not going to have them stop and go wow I was really wrong I'm going to stop my I'm going to change my opinion because of that What is it's it's going to get them to work twice as hard to get their message out, whether it's right or wrong. It's what they believe in. You know, censorship does not causes more problems. And it is very high risk to whoever practices it. I Uh, mean,
0: absolutely. I mean, without making sort of any judgments or opinions, um, you know, what we're finding here in the UK or what, what I'm looking at is anybody um, that is sort of anti-vax if I if I dare say it, it's okay. going down. Right, right. Uh, you know they're being taken down from YouTube, taken down from Facebook, right. I don't know if it, I'm, I'm sure it's the same uh, Same there.
1: Right. Yeah, it is. It's, it's the, 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 can't, the cancel culture if we've gotten to such a the point of where it's just absolutely ridiculous. And um, um, my wife is a librarian in her in a school, and we're actually in, in Loudoun County, Virginia, which is one of the first counties that has decided to take Dr. Seuss. And they used to have a Dr. Seuss Day, and they opened that up because they said th- they wanted a more diverse set of authors for children's officers. So they've canceled Dr. Seuss Day, and, and they're and they're calling it something else. Dr. Seuss is still included. But that kind of started the, the uh, that's all it needed to take was to start this touch point fire for the, the publisher now to come out and say, well, we're not going to publish six of the books. And now Universal Studios, uh, I'm sorry Universal Studios theme park in Orlando, um, they are now reviewing parts parts of their theme park to see if there are parts of Dr. Seuss that they want to eliminate from there. You know, that was a story out this morning. it's just we've gotten to the point where it's just, how far do we have to go to so that no one is offended and, and to, so that we end up with a society that is so dull, uh, so dull and boring and, and just you know, to the point of ridiculous. I mean, golly, it's, it's George Orwell rolling in his grave. He's just, he's, he's, on, he's on point, he's just 40 years late.
0: Absolutely, crazy. And, and sort of looking at this whole COVID situation, how do you, do you see anything? Do you see anything in the statistics? Are you involved in any analysis that? Uh,
1: no, I mean, I am looking at the, 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 the best part and the best argument I can be made is, is the great part about the US is we have 50 states and each state is a laboratory, it, it, whether it's economics or in this case it's COVID or, or cultural or whatever. And we can, you know, you have states that are on complete lockdowns, and you can see what's happened as a repercussion. We have one state, South Dakota, that never locked down, never closed, uh, did, you know, uh, I think they worked some mask mandates, but they never disrupted their economy, and they kept the lowest, they're now the the state with the lowest unemployment in the U.S. Um, You know, Texas and Mississippi just came out. I think yesterday, or yesterday, or the day before, and said we are now opening up. There is no mask mandate. You can wear it if you want, but we'll leave it up to the individual. And now we're going to see. You know, let let that go. Now let's see. You know, they have a belief in what their scientific evidence is, and let's see what let's see whether it works. And and I know there's some very draconian kickback to that. It's like you can't do that. You're playing with people's lives. It's you know, it's like well, you know, every state has a right to. To, to set their own policy, you, you cannot dictate that from above. You know, there's no one size fits all from Texas versus Florida versus California versus New York, you know, that you have to take a different approach in each case. That, that's the part that I get into more in terms of instead of instead of really getting nerdy with the numbers, it's, it's, it's seeing the, the application of them and seeing what the effects are of the based upon the decisions that are being made.
0: It's it is. You're right. It's it's an experiment, isn't it? It's like a big lab because you've got the states. With, you haven't got physical borders as such. It's just a. border
1: right. right.
0: You know, COVID, right. COVID. doesn't know. Well, you'd assume right. COVID doesn't see the borders, right?
1: right? Well, uh, <laughs> we we do that with our with our tax codes. This how states uh, affect the tax. And they do it with how what their priorities are for spending. Whether they spend more on infrastructure or not. Uh, and I grew up in the state of Michigan, and the biggest complaint, and it has never gone away, is that the roads in Michigan are terrible. And I was just there for a, a funeral on Tuesday of a family friend. We, my brothers and I piled up in, a, in the truck and drove there. And you could tell when you got to this, you crossed the border from Ohio into the state of Michigan, because they, the, they had torn the sign down that said, welcome to Michigan, and the roads just went to pot, like almost instantly. And it was just, you know, okay, we're in Michigan now, the, the, the car's starting to bump. So <laughs> and it's just and again it's just how do you fix that it, Well it's a northern state they have more problems with their roads than Florida would but you know, but then you have to plan you have to plan for you know additional infrastructure to take care of that Florida also doesn't have to invest in snow plows like like Michigan does it's it, it, each state has to do things differently and that's the that's the experiment of each state um,
0: Going back to sort of uh, to your inve- to, to your days of, of of the sort of data mining analysis etc. You were involved with another um, infamous case. Uh, yes. Uh, DB Cooper. Now I just yes. read up about this. You'll have to tell me. Yeah. more. I found it fascinating, and I believe you're involved in a potential Netflix pro- project on it as right. Well. Right.
1: that right? Um, right. we I started this project out of the the able danger hearings and the, the the notoriety I was contacted by a investigative reporter and, uh, um, uh, and a producer that uh, worked out of working out of Hollywood or la who was working on several several different projects and he really wanted my insight on data mining and analysis and looking at it from a law enforcement perspective and it wasn't until years later we kept we've kept in touch I kind of did some pro bono work but in 2011, he called me up and said, hey, I got a case. I, I was working on a, a an investigation on a heroin triangle, uh, drug triangle uh, between Seattle, Las Vegas, and LA. And in the process, I had somebody identify and says, I, I, I know who DB Cooper is, it's this guy over here. And he started, he goes, I, I wanna know if you, do you wanna get on this, this project and, and, and use some of your expertise on that. Just, and, and I'd been friends with him a couple of years already. He says, eh, absolutely. You know, count me in." And the more we got into it, well, first we found out there's the guy that we thought was DB Cooper at the beginning was not the guy. It was a different guy. But now, he was know,
0: who, was who his is DB Cooper? Because people here may not have. Heard okay.
1: It, it, yeah, it. that's right. Uh, DB Cooper is kind of a is a is kind of a folk lore or a folk hero uh, in in American, and, and it's he he was a. A disgruntled American who hijacked a, a, a an airline in in Seattle on November 24th of 1971, and he had the aircraft divert to Portland, Oregon. He had the uh, he had the authorities give him 250 thousand dollars and two parachutes. Uh, why do you ask for two parachutes? Because if you ask for one, they're going to give you a bad one. Uh, if you ask for two, you could put the bad one on a flight attendant, yeah. and, and you're risking the, you know somebody on the aircraft. Uh, he had picked an aircraft that the, the, the stairs to go in, going into the aircraft actually lowered from the back of the aircraft. So while it, he gave them instructions now to fly to, I think it was Mexico City or, or, or uh, uh, out of country. And in the flight over Northern California, again, at night, he forced the, the flight crew up. All the passengers were already let off. But he forced the flight crew up to the front of the aircraft, lowered the back, and jumped. And nobody has seen him since. And it's the only unsolved case in our Federal Aviation Administration history. Nobody, uh, really
0: nobody found a body.
1: Oh. Nobody, but uh, it was years later, they found a portion of the cash was was hidden in a, or was dug up on a riverbank. And uh, we now know that the, the, we now we now believe that the family that found it was actually set up. And they were told to find it just to throw authorities off because it was not enough, of the, not enough money to, cut the, to cover all the cash. It was just a small piece of it. And it had been there for several years and yet all the rubber bands around the cash were brand new. Oh,
0: wow. Okay. And so,
1: so there was some specific pieces. And so as we started delving more and more into this individual um, uh, to the, and the individual that was identified, We ended up with I think 1800 pieces of evidence. We ended up with DNA. Um, I got involved with, because the the lead investigator, a friend of mine named Tom Colbert, he had like a 70 page dossier that he was trying to get different law enforcement authorities to read it and nobody was reading it. And so he gave it to me and I gave it to one of my instructors who did a link analysis. Uh, I was running a training program at the time. And we created a chart, a link chart, based upon all the information that we had. And it was one visualization that showed this guy as the center and all of the things that he had been doing his entire life. And it was really, it was one grifting operation after another.
0: Do we know if he's harmed? I mean, up until that point, I mean, he was seen on uh-huh. the plane, right? And people saw him on the plane, I guess. And right. describe right. him, had he, had he hurt anybody or? Did-
1: no, it's and that's that's again, it's, it's one of the reasons why it was it was tough to get uh, F, the FBI to pay attention to what we were doing is the same group within the Bureau and the, and the I think it was a Seattle field office, the same group that was handling cold cases was the same group that was handling missing and exploited children. What's your priority? Uh, some a child who had been missing for two weeks or some old fart 50 years ago who hijacked an aircraft but didn't kill anybody and only stole a quarter of a million dollars. Yeah. So that's that's kind of what we are working working, you know, towards uh, as we started again, and it was a combination of our, our own analysis using some modern data mining tools with old fashioned gumshoe investigative work. Um, we've we've now finally gotten to the point where we're working on a Netflix uh, show uh, for it. The um, and hopefully we'll be you know, and, I, and I'm positive we'll be able to, to you know tell the whole story. Uh, there's actually some details I, I again I don't want to discuss because they'll come out during the series but the uh, do, you know,
0: do we know when it's going to be aired is it this year or
1: uh, well well we're, we're trying to make the 50th anniversary of the jump which is November 24th but I'm not sure we're going to make that uh, but it'll probably be next winter or things you know something along that lines but in the process of doing that one case we are now on three additional cases that folks have just came to us and presented us with a potential solution to And they're just as notorious, or more notorious than that one. So we've been working with with a smaller subset of the of the 40 some folks that we had involved in DB Cooper. We're now a handful of us that are doing that, and it's gotten so it's gotten so popular to the point that my university, I'm in the process of creating a a cold case fraternity or cold case group within our university because as an online school, the, the average age of our student is 32. So we have police investigators, we have cops, we have, you know, analysts and, you know, soldiers and military members who are, you know, who work investigations. And what a fantastic thing is to be able to do that and try a crowdsourcing techniques to solve some of these crimes. Um, And that, you know, in in the U.S. alone, there's something along the lines of 1,800 unsolved murders or cold cases uh, and and more added every year. And, And so that's, you know, if you can create several teams of folks that can do that, what what a fantastic way of crowdsourcing and using modern techniques to solve some of these cases.
0: How many times do you get it wrong, or does the tech not not you personally, but does the analysis get it wrong? Because obviously, it's it's great if you get the right person and yeah, uh, but is there is there some statistics <laughs>
1: <No>. behind
0: um, <laughs> you know the, the good old fashioned way, and then obviously the technology that you're right.
1: using. It's it's a lot, Um, and I think, and that's part of when uh, I I I wrote a book last year on intelligence operations. And part of the reasons why uh, to come, you know, to combat getting it wrong is that every intelligence operation has to be a a perfect combination of the data you bring in, the tools that you use, the people, honestly, the skill sets of the people that you have, and the and the processes that you use. and that becomes, you know, that becomes a big piece. A lot of organizations, especially after 9-11, was like, well, we're going to create a an, an intel analysis cell, or they didn't call it intelligence, or you know, and the, and all they did was really, we're going to take a bunch of data, we're going to take a bunch of data mining tools, and we're going to throw it into this room with servers and everything, and now we have an intelligence function, and they forget about you have to have people with the right skill set. They, they have the
0: department. You discovered it. You you found it, and they still include right. it. they they still wanted you to dump it
1: right right so
0: doesn't it it come to in the end of the day if your stats or if the computer or with your data doesn't match up with whoever's in that governing position doesn't like the sound of it or doesn't know
1: right well that the the biggest part about and and, and the folks that that lose cause problems in, in intelligence are folks that lose sight that The whole reason we exist is to support somebody else. You know, intelligence is there to support a customer, a decision maker, somebody who does not have the time or the capability themselves to understand all the the, all the things about their threat or their or their competitors. And you know, I and I expand the term threat to, you know, the opposing if, if you're you know in pro sports the opposing team. There is somebody who watches videos on the imposing on the imposing team to see their plays. Who's injured? Who's not? Who's having contractual problems? All of those factor in how they're going to play the game next. So that's that's what I mean by it's. It it takes a lot more than you know. There, you have to classify a threat as something other than a deadly national security threat. A threat could be just a threat to your livelihood as a company, your 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 competitors, or something like that. I mean, people talk
0: about. In fact, I'm going to ask you what, what we've talked a little bit about this, what you think the biggest threat that the U.S. faces today. And I know you mentioned cyber. Is, is there anything right.
1: Um there, I, I take it from two two perspectives. One, you, don't, you don't
0: think it's COVID? Just no, <laughs>
1: no, I, I don't. It's... The threat, that threat is we're, we're, uh, we're doing I'm not that, being
0: victims, obviously, if anyone has had people with it. Right.
1: Uh, I, I look at, I still look at uh, what there's a term called asymmetric threats, and it's really threats that uh, are, do not come from, you know, a, a national, like a national threat or something like that. I still think our, our same uh, strategic and competitors in the world, whether it's China or Iran, um, r- Russia, in some cases, you know, that, that is, th- those are still a threat to our national security. They will always be. That that's there's no way around that. We can, we can have partnerships with them. We can we can have uh, strategic relations with them. But you know we always have to be uh, you know vigilant toward that from a from a intelligence standpoint. The, just because the Cold War is over does not mean the spying has not stopped. In fact, it's it has ramped up and. There is for, for for God for, for crying out loud. I, I go to conferences now where uh, the, the focus of the conference is how companies are spying on other companies. You know, and that that's you know, intelligence has gone way beyond national security and it's it's filtered into every aspect of our lives with, with a, that. a
0: company spying on us as well.
1: What's that? Um well think of think about Think about all you know—the all the invasions of privacy that, that are now coming out about.
0: I've, I've got an Alexa who who you know shoots <laughs> up now and again, and I'm like, right. "Who said that? Why?" Are you? Right. <laughs> it does scare me. It's like Big Brother's watching.
1: Uh, uh, yeah, right. Absolutely. And that's it, it's. Uh, it dawned on me when I was uh, one of th- I was working with uh, Norton Antivirus and Symantec, uh, some folks who make Symantec and uh, the, the parent company. And they were talking about how they double their shifts at one point of the day during the weekday because the amount of cyber attacks doubles during that time. And it's just, and, and, I, and I use this as a point for, for teaching when I, when I do get a chance to, to get in the classroom. And I always ask the students, so when are, when are US networks most, most vulnerable to attack during the week? And the answer is always, well, it's gotta be the weekend, Friday night, Saturday, early in the mornings. It's 12 to three in the afternoons on the weekdays. Because most of the attacks and, and are are occur from s- script kiddies who are home from school and their parents are at work. Wow. And, and that's when they, they used to double their shift. Now COVID has probably thrown that model totally out the window. Yeah, because
0: we're you know, So that schooling. <laughs> so.
1: Right, right. And so when you have a limited amount of resources to put that, that's why you rely upon the intelligence folks to say, you know, here's some patterns that we see for these attacks. You know, and if we were able and able to, to figure, figure some things out when we were doing some cyber network defense about what types of targets were the, were the kids going for versus uh, you know, a national threat or you know, a, foreign, uh, a foreign intelligence service. And so uh, we saw our, like the, the Army's medical, uh, medical networks were under attack during, during one portion of our time, my time there. Uh, we immediately, we knew that was a, a foreign adversary. But when we saw all these in attempted intrusions and, and, and we saw all this discussion the, the number one target for uh, a 17 to 21 year old to break into a doD the, the, uh, a US Department of Defense network is area 51 is to find out information about aliens that supposedly we got buried in the deserts uh, out in you know Ros- near Ross that, that was their main focus is trying to get in and find that information because they dang sure knew we were hiding it.
0: I'm going to have to ask, do you have any information on that?
1: that... Yeah. You know, and I say no. And if I did, I'd say no, oh. so, <laughs> so, um, but it that's been, be. Like... <laughs> but that became a, a focal point. In fact, I, re- I remember we were looking at setting uh, our, our defense guys were like, you know, we know these kids are coming here. Let's set up a fake site. And just have them go go to some fake site that, that that'll keep them happy and then they'll stay away from the rest of the network is it was, it was a fish like a fishbowl uh, operation
0: i'm dying to ask if we've got bunkers somewhere in case the human race <laughs> now, people have to survive and a, I, cop, a or a meteor or an invasion
1: you, you got to get more fiction writers on your show to <laughs> answer that so
0: <laughs> um Eric, look, on, on a more uh, serious note, do, do you see what we've talked about threats um, to, to the U.S.? And, and I guess I, I don't just mean the U.S. because I think this is the global thing. Certainly. Right. Right.
1: Um,
0: why do you do what you do? What do you love about
1: it? There, I mean, again, I always have that, uh, there, there's always a like, a like a patriotic foundation to that, but I, I just love doing analysis. I, I got into wargaming as a eight-year-old uh, and doing historical wargaming with my brothers and families and things like that um, the the type of analysis that had to go in that was very similar and so when I, I was a I was an intelligence officer for an armor brigade and an infantry battalion in Germany in the mid 90s and my after one of our exercises where we were deployed uh, I, we, we had to sit down with the commander and the commander sat down and he goes I he goes. I've I've never seen it like this before. But you do what you do very well. And he says, and you, I goes. You're one of the few people that looks like you enjoy it. And I just said, sir, I've been I've been playing war games since I was eight years old. You're just paying me to do it now. And that that became that part. And so I, and that, you know, goes from one part of my career to the next. Anything it always had to do with analysis. And so I've actually shied away from. You know, it's staying out of the the upper like upper management, or you know, wanting to be a CEO or a general officer or something like that, because as you progress up that chain, you're doing more and more management of personnel. That's, and you're getting less and less away from what I know I'm I'm good at.
0: Yeah.
1: And so that that's if if I could show you down to the other end of my basement, I got a room with thousands of miniature figures that I painted. I've got two game tables. They each cost a thousand a piece because they're Re, they're recessed with all the, you know, with USB ports on the side and there's, you know, all kinds of board games and there's a, there's a company out of UK Games Workshop. I think I put some of their kids through college with the amount of money I've spent oh, on wow. that. My neighbors come down and, and look at this kind of stuff and just, and they're just like, how can you afford all that time and all that patience and, and money to, to do this? And I just look at them and say, well, I don't, I don't golf. Yeah. You know,
0: I, well, never, I, t- I never, I <laughs> never took
1: up golf. It's your <laughs> value. It's
0: your passion. It's your purpose, right? It's right. A, we've all got a gift.
1: We've all got a right. Plan. Right. And that got me into writing my book last year, and now I'm writing. I'm. And I'm getting into writing a fiction fiction book based upon uh, gaming. It's just, you know, the, these things. Now, as as I get older and older, I get I start changing the things I want to do in my life, and you know that's that's one of them but all of them are, are you know a tribute to my family and tribute to my father and my my wife and two kids and that kind of thing those those are always the most important pieces for me
0: eric it really has been so interesting talking to you and that's oh,
1: thank a you pleasure. likewise
0: um i've just come to my my last because so we're running out of time okay. and that is if you were to write a message in a bottle for mm-hmm. future generations to find what would that message be?
1: I would, I would only write, uh, you know, and and I, and I hate having to sit down and think about, think about these kind of things because your life gets so busy and you get overwhelmed from day to day. But I think that would be the thing is never let you get, never let yourself get overwhelmed from day to day. Focus on the things that understand what is important to you in your life and always keep those in focus. And to me, it's, my God, my country, and my family. And, and everything you do will, will gear toward that.
0: Eric, thank you so much for being a guest on my show. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, there's a new interview out every Monday. So hit subscribe and like, and you'll get it straight into your inbox.